2014 Faith Forward podcast series. The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 Faith Forward Gathering, which was held in Nashville, Tennessee. On May 19th through the 22nd of that year, hundreds of conversation partners from across the globe and spanning dozens of denominational traditions gathered to question, share, and be inspired to reimagine ministry with youth and children. This podcast episode features Andrew Root's presentation at this gathering, which he titled, What is the Theological Turn in Youth Ministry? And what does this have to do with children's ministry? So, um, a few years ago, as was mentioned in my introduction, Kenda Creasy Dean and I wrote this book called The Theological Turn in Youth Ministry. It's that book with the really pissed off kids on the cover. I have no idea why they're so mad, but they are mad. And I think they're mad at you. I don't know why, but they're mad. But we wrote this book, and we wrote it because we kind of sensed, being with people like you all, that there was a slight movement, that there was a significant movement of people who wanted to think more deeply about what they were doing in youth ministry and even children's ministry. But I think what happens when you write a book is sometimes it takes till the book is out to realize that you really didn't quite know what you were getting at. And that's kind of what's happened with this book. As we've talked about it, we've started to realize we could have been more specific about what we were actually asking people to turn to or turn away from. We didn't really be specific on what all this turning was about. Now, as we've lived into it, I think we've come to some conclusions, at least I've come to some conclusions. And first and foremost, I think we did want to say, and I think we did say, that when you do youth ministry, when you do children's ministry, we'd like you to turn away from thinking of youth ministry or children's ministry as a technology. Now, I have to be careful here because people are loaded with their Twitter and when you come to conferences like this, if you insult someone's denomination, they get a little uncomfortable. If you insult Twitter, they get mad. Like, they get really mad. So easy, Twitter people. I'm not insulting technology and gadgets. I'm a big technology gadget person. I actually love gadgets and technology. When I rank the things I love in my life, it's my children, my computer, my wife. Like, those are the things that I actually love. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, and actually, I love technology so much. For Christmas, I got a TiVo Romeo. And I don't know if you know about TiVo Romeo people, but let me tell you, I have seen the promised land, and it is TiVo Romeo. I would like to take off the mic, just sit down, and tell you all the wonderful things TiVo Romeo could do for you. I mean, I like technology. I think it's important. I think it's interesting. But here's what I think has happened. I mean, if we follow Charles Taylor a little bit and say that the way we interact in culture gives us these social imaginaries, ways that we imagine ourselves, that our culture gives us conceptions of how we even understand reality, there is a certain way that engulfed in a technological age that it's framed the way we've seen ourselves, the world, our neighbor. And I think what technology does is it tends to frame the world around problems and functional solutions. Everything's a problem, and there's a functional solution to solve it. I mean, don't you kind of feel this way? We know that the, uh, the polar ice caps are melting, and it's pretty bad. But don't you kind of think they're going to come up with an app to fix, fix that? You know, like they're working on an app to that. I mean, we know that this is a peril, that this is a problem, but we kind of feel like technology will solve these problems. Or maybe another example is that great movie um, from the late 90s or so. Uh, remember Apollo 13? Remember the movie Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks? If you haven't seen Apollo 13, just go back to your hotel room, turn on TNT, and it will be on in about 15 minutes. It just like <laughs> runs on a constant loop over and over again. 
But remember Apollo 13, it is about the mission to the moon. They are going to land on the moon, do another moonwalk. Tom Hanks is his dreamy Tom Hanks self. Um, they head up, and of course, on the way um, to circle the moon and land on it, malfunction, problem. They will not be able to land, and they may not even get these people home. And that's when we get the great cinematic line, Houston, we have a problem. And then you remember the scene that comes after that, where down in Houston, they gather their greatest technicians, and they say, um, they take out a, a cardboard box, they dump it out on the table, and they say, this is all they got up there, get them home, get them home. I mean, these guys are at the moon, and they take just a bunch of junk, and they say, figure out some way, create some technology to fix this problem and get them home. And it actually works. They get them home. Technology is an amazing thing, but it tends, again, to frame the way we see ourselves in the world as problem that can be solved by a functional process. Or let me show you a diagram that maybe illustrates this, and my wife says you have to be on drugs to understand my diagrams. So what I'm saying is, smoke them if you got them, all right? Here we go. <laughs> and if you don't have them, find someone from Colorado and maybe, you know, there you go. All right, they're there, right there. All right, here we go. So this is a diagram for you. So technology, think of technology as science used to solve a problem. Science used to solve a problem that provides a new form that then brings ex exponential growth or increases capital. So think of Apple in the iPhone. So Apple starts to realize they have a problem. They have a problem here. And the problem is the security of the phone itself. So they get their best scientists, their best technicians. They work on this problem. They come up with a functional solution, which is that home button that reads your fingerprint. Um, they, get, they have a new form, which is the new, the new home button. They know when they release that into the market that it will move many, many units of phones and Apple stock will go up. So it is about a problem in solving the problem with the new form. Now I think what happened in Protestantism, particularly after the youth counterculture of the late 1960s, is that congregational-based youth ministry, um, and to a lesser extent children's ministry, but for sure youth ministry, I think, um, became the church's technology. We have a problem, and a problem are our kids. They're doing drugs, they don't like the Bible, they don't wear their seatbelts or whatever. They are a problem and we need to solve this problem. So what do we do? We look for a specialist who has the technology, which tends to be the program, and they will find the new form of how to do the youth group or to have a youth group at all, and they will solve the problem which will increase the capital of the church, which means more kids will come and there'll be more energy around the youth ministry. So I think youth ministry in many ways has been this technology. It's one of the reasons why you, when you go to conferences like this and you have lunch with somebody, almost the first question you ask somebody after their name is, so how big's your church and what do you do? I mean, we almost ask them, what's your technology? And some of us have even been sent here by pastors who saw this brochure and said, go there, there's some people who know some stuff and they can give you the new model, the new form, the new way to do children's ministry or youth ministry and that will finally solve our problems. We'll no longer be at a church in decline or we'll no longer have to compete with the non-denominational church across town. We can actually increase our capital. Now in the book, The Theological Turn, I think we rightly, but maybe not as specifically said, we want you to turn from thinking of your ministry as a technology. The second thing we ask you to take a turn from that maybe was a lot less specific is that we actually ask you to take a turn away from thinking of this as the theology turn in youth ministry. I've actually been really surprised as this book has been out 
how many people, um, people I wouldn't expect who have said to me, thank you so much for writing this book. And then they'll say, I've been saying for years, like, we've got to get kids to know stuff more. I've been saying for years, we've just got to get junior high kids to read Tillich. If, kids, if junior high kids just read Tillich, everything would be okay. And that's actually, I don't think, what we're getting at uh, here. I remember my, one of my first uh, official ministry jobs was a volunteer confirmation teacher um, in the home church that I grew up in. And I was a freshman in college, and for some reason I had something important or an exam to do, so I couldn't be with the bus that headed up on the confirmation retreat. So I rode up with um, another volunteer leader named Ryan. And I was a first-year college student, a freshman, but Ryan was a first-year seminary student. And he was obnoxious as all first-year seminary students are. <laughs> Sorry, first-year seminary students. Um, but as we were going up, Ryan had you know, taken a half-semester of classes, and he was ready for this. He was ready to do a theology turn in youth ministry, and he had the afternoon Saturday talk, and he told me all the way up, he said, I'm going to do it. I, I just, I, we got to give these kids theology. I mean, they have to know theology. I mean, all this fun and game stuff, it's over. We've got to give these kids theology. Now, at the time, I couldn't even spell theology, so I was like, yeah, that sounds terrific. All right. So we got to the camp, we slammed our doors, headed into the chaos of the confirmation retreat, and Ryan gave me one more look of intensity and said, this is, I'm going to do it. This is, this is, this is it. I'm going to give them theology. Well, Saturday afternoon rolled around, and Ryan surely gave them theology. I mean, it was 25 minutes of um, some parsed Greek verbs, um, a little conversation about superlapsarianism, how the temple structure of Israel was set up, and you could just see every minute heavier and heavier on the kids. Theology was just pushing them down. And Ryan just kept talking and talking. And finally, when he ended, the kids stood up and literally sprinted for the back door as if to escape the theological minutia that was drowning them. I think when we're saying take a theological turn, we're not just saying take a turn to theology. Now, I like theology. I actually like to read it. But I'm not so sure it's a one-to-one -one correlation to being a good pastor. That the more theology you read, automatically you become a good pastor. I think what we actually meant when we said we want you to take a theological turn is actually that very thing. That we want you to take a theological turn. And by theological, I mean giving attention and being near in ministering to the very concrete and lived humanity of children and young people. To be near their very person. That the theological starts with the concrete and lived experience of young people themselves. Now let me give you an example of this, and this is the dirty self-promotional part of my presentation. In September I have a, a new book coming out called Bonhoeffer as Youth Worker. And it was a fascinating book, actually it's one of these um, books where you, you get more joy in writing it than thinking, you know, you hope it helps people, but it was just a great joy in writing it. And I had studied Bonhoeffer for a long time, but had always sensed, but hadn't had the time to kind of look into how much youth work and children's ministry Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. And it's not just a lot, it's like all he did. From 1925 to 1939, when the war starts, all the ministry Dietrich Bonhoeffer did was either in children's ministry or youth ministry. He was a children's minister, his first, first First, youth, uh, first ministry job ever, 1925, he's a children minister in Grenwald. Then in Barcelona. He, even when he's in New York and he ends up in a storefront African-American church in Harlem, what does he do? He doesn't preach. He runs a Sunday school. 
He does children's ministry. Then he's a confirmation teacher. Then his first actual interaction with National Socialism and the Nazis is a radio address he gave called The Younger Generation's Conception of the Fuhrer. All of his interactions were with, with children or young people. He was a youth worker doing the theological or a theologian with young people on his mind. Now, one of the interesting situations that happened to Bonhoeffer was back when he was in Barcelona and he was an intern. And if you need to feel bad about yourself um, here on the morning of the second morning of the conference, just think of Bonhoeffer's biography because it will always make you feel insecure about what you've accomplished. Bonhoeffer was 21 years old, went on internship, already with a PhD in his back pocket. He had finished his PhD at 21, started at 19, finished at 21, didn't really know what else to do, thought he might become an academic, but it was also feeling the pull to be a pastor, so he went on internship, decided to go to the warm sun of Barcelona, gets involved there, um, and starts doing children's ministry. Starts being involved in children's ministry. And we get this letter that he wrote, um, and he wrote it to this man named Walter Dress. And Walter Dress was actually, uh, would become his brother-in-law. And he was the only other person in Dietrich's family who had any pastoral or theological interests. All of Dietrich's rest of his family were agnostic, politicians, lawyers. Um, so he writes him this letter. And this letter kind of has this Pawn Stars, American Pickers feel to it, because it wasn't discovered until 1999. It was actually hidden in a cachet of letters that Walter Dress had, and when he died in 1999, they found it. And you can now read this letter in the Fortress, Volume 10 of the Bonhoeffer works. But it's a fascinating letter. And it starts like this. Dietrich writes Walter Dress, and he says, Did I ever talk to you about Emil Brunner's book, The Divine Imperative? This very important 20th century theology book had just come out. Dietrich had been interested in ethics since he was a young boy. And he reads the book, and this is what he says to Walter Dress. I can't stand that book. The book's awful. I was so deeply disappointed with it. I just, I can't believe how bad it was. I had to stop 60 pages before the end because I could, just couldn't take it anymore. Here is this 21-year-old snot-nosed kid ripping apart probably the second most important theologian in continental Europe at the time. Just rips him apart with arrogance, just tears him down. But then the next paragraph, things all switch. It's as if he forgot of this occurrence. And he says to Walter Dress, oh, 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 did I tell you what happened to me? So did I tell you what happened to me? And it almost becomes a pastoral care uh, verbatim. And he says to Walter Dress, he says, at 11 a.m., a 10-year-old boy who's in our church came to my flat. I had asked his parents if I could borrow something, and so he was coming to my flat to run this errand. And I noticed that the boy was down. He's usually just kind of a personification of upbeat and crazy and wild. I can barely get him to stop talking in my class and behave, but he was down. So I noticed this, and I came near to him. And so what Dietrich does is he attunes himself to this boy's lived, concrete experience. And then the boy begins to cry. So he takes this 10-year-old boy, and he puts him on his knee, and he just starts to cry. And Dietrich is with him. And in the midst of his crying, Dietrich starts to be able to hear him say, Mr. Wolf, Mr. Mr. Wolf, Mr. Wolf is dead. Mr. Wolf is dead. And Dietrich says to Walter Dress, and who is Mr. Wolf? Mr. Wolf is a two-year-old German shepherd dog. 
And he just, just hours earlier had died. So Dietrich invites him to narrate his experience. And the dog tells Dietrich, the, Dietrich tells, uh, the boy tells Dietrich about how the dog woke him up every morning, about how he played with the dog, about how the dog was there when he came home from school, how he loved the dog and the dog was his best friend. And Dietrich just holds him and is with him in the midst of this. Reminds me of one of my early ministry experiences. Now I'm a paid youth worker and I take kids to camp. And I felt pretty good about myself because I had had the technology to get all the kids to camp and to fill all my camp spots. And so I was feeling really good. And one of the kids that I got was Adam. And Adam was a big, you know, almost six-foot freshman varsity hockey player. And in Minnesota, to play varsity hockey as a ninth grader is a big deal. And he was mean and tough for a, you know, ninth grade hockey player. And I got him to go to camp. Well, the first night of camp, the music goes, they hear the gospel message, and to my shock, I look across the room, and Adam's crying. And like any youth pastor, I think to myself, we got him. We got him. We got him. So I had the sensitivity to wait until the room cleared out. And then I walked up to Adam, and his hands were on his head, and he was crying. And I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, Adam, you want to go for a walk? He said, yeah. So we went on a walk, and just like this 10-year-old boy, he was crying. And I said, well, Adam, what is it? And he says, it's just, it's just, and I'm thinking, it's just Jesus? It's just Jesus? He says, it's just, and I'm like, J -j Jesus? And I'm already thinking, you know, he's going to say, oh, it's just Jesus. And then I'm thinking already, like, what chapter in his biography, when he becomes a missionary, will I be? You know, like, what, what <laughs> chapter 3, chapter 4. I should get a full chapter, maybe a half, you know. Um, so I'm thinking this, you know, and he says, it's just, it's just, it's just. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just she doesn't even know I exist. <laughs> and I held it in. But I bit my lip, and I thought, I didn't say, but I thought, you stupid kid. You stupid kid, here we are talking about eternity in Jesus, and all you care about is this dumb girl. You won't even remember her in a week. And of course, then I have the worst, exper worst, uh, worst experience where I get flashbacks and realize, oh my gosh, it's like a movie, you know, flashbacks. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, he was on the bus and he was talking to this girl. Oh my gosh, she signed up before he did. He only went because she signed up. It had nothing to do with me. It was only her. Oh my gosh. And I had the sensitivity that day not, you know, to take him down a peg. Um, but I did think, you idiot kid. But of course, I think, of course, of course, that was bad ministry that day. This was his lived human experience. And he had to seek for God up against what it feels like to be rejected. What it feels like to lose something that you desire or to say, have someone say no to you. Or what to do when your dog dies, the dog that you love. So this boy, Mr. Wolf, is dead. And Dietrich allows him to narrate his experience. And they sit in silence. But then the boy turns to Dietrich and says, but Herr Bonhoeffer, tell me now. Tell me now. Will I see Mr. Wolf again in heaven? Will I see Mr. Wolf again in heaven? There it is. The theological bust forth from the lived experience. The theological busts forth not from theology, but from ministry. 
The act of ministering to the humanity of the young boy brings forth the theological question, will I see my dog again in heaven? And then what Bonhoeffer says, which is incredibly fascinating, he says to his friend Walter Dress, he says, I didn't know what to say. And then he said, I felt small. I felt small. Dietrich Bonhoeffer never felt small anywhere. Since he was seven years old, his family had been, um, had been entertaining the elites of Berlin. Max Weber used to come to his house for dinner. He used to take the train with Adolf von Harnack. He went to Karl Barth's seminar and spoke up. I mean, he never felt small, ever. He felt more highly of himself than anyone else in the room. And here is a 10-year-old boy with the question of a dead dog, and it makes one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century feel small, feel teeny. He said, I felt small next to him. This is the incredible thing that you all do that you in children's ministry, in youth ministry do, that you are with young people next to their theological questions, the questions of the theological next to their lived experience. They're searching for God next to their dead dogs or their divorced parents or the question of why won't anyone sit with me at, at, at lunch? Why do I feel so alone? What is my lifetime and why do I live it? The great beauty of what you all do is to be near young people as the theological bursts forth from the activity of ministry itself. So Bonhoeffer tells Walter Dress, he says, I, I didn't know what to say. And he essentially says, my, the, my, my training in theology, my reading of theology, didn't help, I didn't know what to say. So, so I thought about it. But he said the boy wanted a yes or no answer. It wasn't enough just to kind of say, well, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't know. He said the boy wanted an answer. So Dietrich says to the boy, he says, well, we know that God loves you. And we know you loved this dog. And we know that God loves all animals. And then Dietrich says to the boy, I don't think God ever loses what God loves. So yes, I think you will see your dog in heaven again. So for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's true. All dogs do go to heaven. <laughs> but this is the theological and I think this is what we do in the context of ministry that is so utterly beautiful. To be near the lived experience of young people, that those big questions pop up, and to minister their person as we do those. And one of the most fascinating things to me as the letter ends, Dietrich says to Walter Dress, that they sat in silence, and he said that it seemed like this was good news to the boy. He said, but then the boy turned to me and said, I scolded Adam and Eve today because they ate that fruit. And then, he said, and then he starts to talk about what his religion teacher had said and what boys in his class had said. And what's fascinating is that when someone is near the humanity of the boy and hears his theological question, the boy starts to do the theological himself. He starts to think his faith itself. In a world post soul searching, in a world post um, how are we going to get our young people to understand the faith, how are we going to get them to know about the faith story, um, where we all, always want to go back to technology and think, well, we gotta, uh, if, if young people don't know anything about the faith story, we gotta, we got to teach better, we got to find a better technology, we got to find a better form to do this, or we think we just got to give them more theology, they just got to know stuff, they should just read more Kelvin. Um, <laughs> it seems like the way to actually ignite our young people to think the faith it's actually to minister to their person, to have their very questions bubble up from their lived experience and for us to wrestle with them. 
final story. A number of years ago, I was asked to go to Southern California because there was a youth ministry there that was, um, well, they were wanting to fire their junior high youth director, and they needed someone, an outside person, to give them the okay that this was fine. Now, I live in Minnesota, and this was February, so you can't judge me unless you've lived in Minnesota in February. <laughs> and this church was in Southern California, so I was like, this just makes sense. Uh, so I went, and I kind of, on my flight, I had this kind of feeling like, wow, I'm like George Clooney and up in the air. Like, I am going to, you know, give bad news. So I went, and it was a big junior high uh, youth group. It was actually middle school, 6th to, um, to 8th grade. And there was about 60 kids and uh, in this beach community in Southern California, and the night started, the Wednesday night program started, and it was pure chaos. I mean, it was pure chaos. The boys were in the back of the room literally running up the wall. Like, they would run and see how high they would get, and like, oh, look at that, let's see how high you can get. And, then as, and that was just before it started, and then as it started, and then worship music was going on, the boys were in the back trying to kick each other in the head. Like, the one would stand like this, and the other would kick and see how close they could get. Like, oh, you're only two inches away. And then the talk begins, and the girls are huddled up, passing notes. Now the boys, you know, they're Southern California boys, so they're surfing on the back of their chairs. They're getting the back two chairs to go and see how long. It was awful. And I'm sitting in the corner as a fly on the wall, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, she's getting fired. Like, this, is, this is not good, this, this youth worker. And it was bad. I mean, her, she was terrible at theology when she gave a talk. The whole technology of the program was not so good, except at the very end. At the very end, she grabbed the mic. And she said to the kids, okay, now we are going to pray like we do. And this weird silence came over the young people. Then a young person raised her hand. She stood up, and in her eighth grade Southern California way, she said, um, like, I just like, you know, I just like need, like, prayer, because, like, I'm dealing with it again. And I had no idea what it was, but clearly the rest of the community did. And so she sat down, and another kid raised his hand. They passed that kid the mic, and he prayed for her. Another kid raised his hand and said, maybe you've heard in church this last week, but, like, my mom's cancer is back, so I need prayer for that. Another kid raised his hand, and she prayed for him. And it went on like that for about ten minutes. Then the woman, the youth director, grabbed the mic. She prayed for the group. She said amen. And literally like that, the boys went back to kicking each other in the head. <laughs> so the next day, they took me in and said, uh, so what do you think? You can almost, you know, there's like blood on their teeth. Like, what should we do? And I said, nothing. She's, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Yeah, maybe she could use a little help with this or that. But what more could you want? Here are these young people articulating to one another in this community of faith their lived experience, and together they're wrestling before God. I think this is what we do. And it is an incredible, incredible privilege, people, to be with young people as they ask questions about their dead dog. They ask questions about what is a lifetime and why do we live it. This is your vocation, and it is hard, but it is beautiful, and it is a gift of God. So grab a hold of it with both hands and thank God for it. Amen. The contents of this podcast episode are reproduced by permission of the presenter and Faith Forward under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivations Copyright. 
The Faith Forward podcasts are produced by Dave Sinis. Stay tuned for more episodes of the 2014 Faith Forward podcast series on the web at faith-forward.net. And join us in Chicago for the 2015 Faith Forward gathering, April 20th through 23rd.